Hello, I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12, usually in Tel Aviv, right now in Washington. And we are unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. We are going to talk all about why you're in Washington. I mean, you're going to just hog the whole show. Let's face it, you are our special guest this week because you're going to tell us (laughs) in a second what you've been doing. I was going to tell you how dramatic and exciting it is for me here because we're in the midst of, and I'm in the midst of covering the uh, uh, emergence of a new British prime minister, but never to be outdone. Yoni Levy, you have decided (laughs) that there is an even bigger story going on, which has taken you to Washington. So go on. That's what we're going to be talking about on a holy this week, what you have been doing in the capital of the United States. I I really like, I just like stealing your thunder. I mean, you figured that out by now, right? Um, It's becoming a pattern. (laughs) I've uh, been here in the past couple of days uh, because there was uh, an exclusive interview that I did uh, with President Joe Biden for Channel 12, which was done on the eve of his visit to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, And this is, of course, uh, a man that doesn't uh, give too many interviews, not nationally, definitely not internationally. This is his first television uh, interview with a foreign network. So that was pretty exciting. It's a major, major journalistic coup. He gives, as you said, he he has been quite reluctant to do sit-down interviews with American news networks. He doesn't particularly want to do it, um, and not at all with foreign networks until you. You have beaten rather the BBC and all the other rival networks to that first sit-down interview with Joe Biden. So, I mean, well, we're going to hear bits of the interview, and it's a completely uh, revealing and interesting conversation, and all kinds of uh, important news points come out of it. But just give us a little tiny behind-the-curtain glimpse of how on earth you managed to bag this great journalistic <laughs> trophy. How does that happen? I, I can't tell you all my secrets, Jonathan. Uh, just I give think us a little I, hint. You always need a, a peg, right? And obviously a visit to Israel uh, is a good, good excuse to talk to his team and tell them how important it would be to send a message across to the Israeli audience and really to the larger Middle East. And I think something of that uh, resonated with them. I mean, you you hear it in the interview as well, and, and it's really hard to miss that Joe Biden really is very affectionate towards Israel. He keeps the country in his thoughts. You hear how we, and we'll hear this in a minute, he talks about the fact that he's met with and worked with every Israeli prime minister since Golda Meir, right, up until Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, And you can hear just how much he cares about Israel. Maybe we want to hear a little bit of that. In a few hours, you're going to embark on your trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia. You've had a long-standing, very warm connection to Israel, spanning decades. You've been there nine times. This is your 10th visit, but first, your first as president. Is it different for you to come as president? It's kind of like going home. I know that sounds strange, but it does. And I've gotten to meet every prime minister since Golda Meir. Golda had a great line. I was with her... And uh, she was at the war, and she was sitting at her desk, and guy sitting next to me was her assistant, a guy named Rabin, <laughs> for real. And she was sitting at her desk and pulling down those maps she had me and talking about all the damage and everything that was done. And all of a sudden, she said, would you like a picture? And I said, well, yes, Madam Prime Minister. And she's looking straight ahead. She said, don't look so sad. I said, Madam Prime Minister, the picture you painted, we're just looking straight ahead. Mm-hmm. She said, we have a secret weapon. I thought she was going to tell me I so I turned. She said, we have no place to go. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's true. And that's why I think it's so important that uh, we maintain the kind of relationship we have with it. I mean, first of all, it's a reminder of just how long 
he has been around. But I agree with what you said before. I think he really does convey there a sentiment which was once very sort of common among American Democrats, but you hear much more rarely, which is this deep affinity and connection. Mm -hmm. He's making there an incredibly Zionistic point Mm -hmm. that the Jews have no other homeland, etc. You know, that was de rigueur for Democrats 50 years ago. But he's he's of that vintage. And it's just very powerful to hear him saying it directly to you. Well, you know, on the one hand, of course, uh, Joe Biden is the vice president of President Obama. And many Israelis view Obama still with this kind of suspicion, although I think not uh, rightfully so. But um, he, I think in a way, he feels like he still has something to prove, although he really doesn't. And I think maybe he also wanted to prove it to the younger generation of Israelis who don't know these stories about, you know, Golda Meir and everything. And that, what did he call him? That guy sitting next to her, Rabin, right? I mean, so he has this uh, deep affection. And I think that he saw this as an opportunity because there are a lot of issues on the table, mainly Iran, that this is a large disagreement between uh, Israel and the Biden administration. He kind of wanted to use that as an opportunity to talk directly to uh, the Israeli people. Yeah, and, and I think that when you were talking before about why he you know, accepted your request for an interview, that was obviously part of the thinking, that he wanted to make his yep. case directly to the Israeli people. So this point about it, Iran... It wasn't really a request, him, Jonathan. It was like, you know me, it was more like... Um, a demand. Inor- a an demand. inordinate amount, an inordinate amount of nudging and, and you know pestering and being a nudnik. So that was more, it was less a request, really. <laughs> yeah, a nudge might be the right word here if we if we deploy the Yiddish vocabulary. Let's go into the Iran thing, though, because you did get mm-hmm. into some substance on that. So let's, can we, can, let's just hear that exchange. I'd like to pick up and talk and ask you about Iran. Um, you know, most of Israelis are opposed to return to the Iran deal, um, and American partners in the region seem skeptical. May I ask you, or many Israelis wonder, why you're determined to return to the deal? Because the only thing worse than the Iran that exists now is the Iran with nuclear weapons. And if we can return to the deal and hold them tight, I think it was a gigantic mistake for the last president to get out of the deal. They're closer to a nuclear weapon now than they were before. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, whether or not the the um, Quds Force is uh, going to stop or they're going to continue to be engaged in activities. We can act against them and still have a deal where they curtail their nuclear program. And so I still think it makes sense. We've laid out on the table. We've made the deal. We've offered it. And it's up to Iran now. Are you committed to keep the RGC on the foreign terrorist uh, organization list, even if that means that kills the deal? Yes. Mm-hmm. You, uh, in the past, said you'll do anything, and you say it again, that you'll ensure Iran would not acquire nuclear weapons. Does that also mean, sir, that you would use uh, force against Iran? Is that what that means? If need- That was the last resort, yes. Mm-hmm. And would you work in Israel with that kind of thing? Have you received any assurances from I'm Israel? I'm not going to speculate on that. Yeah. But uh, Iran cannot get a nuclear weapon. Yoni, that has made some news in Israel, mm-hmm. I think, that remark. Did it go much beyond what, I mean, was it what you were expecting him to say? Is it what people, what he has said before? Just talk us through the significance First of that. First of all, I mean, I, I was, I have to say that I came, I didn't expect him to be very, very clear and give very clear sort of headlines on the Iranian thing. And it was really the exclamation marks and not the question marks. So first of all, he started out by saying, we have to say this, he started out by saying, I think, still think a deal is the best way to go to prevent a nuclear Iran. 
But then he said very clearly, the fact that uh, I will, this is a promise he made to Naftali Bennett as prime minister. He said it out loud for the first time. I will keep the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard uh, Corps inside the foreign terrorist organization's list. Uh, even if that kills the deal, which is the substantial thing of what he said, is obviously a very dramatic uh, headline, which I think made some waves beyond Israel. Um, but he also said, you know, if we will have to, we'll use force. Now, again, this is maybe staple for many uh, presidents to say, but the fact that he's saying it a few days before the negotiations have to restart or reignite, rather, is, is I think, an interesting thing in itself. He's trying to show, again, going back to the point, He's trying to show Israelis, I'm on your side. I get your issues. I know what you're concerned about. And this is what I uh, think about, about this. And it is a big deal. An American president saying, even as a last resort, that they yeah. are prepared to use force in the pursuit right. of a policy goal is always a big deal. And right. it was surprising to me to mm -hmm. hear how uncaveated that was. It was unambiguous. Yep. He didn't go, you know, attach whole, whole lots of diplomatic sort of boilerplate to it. Um, and so I thought anyway, it was um, quite striking. Yeah, I was trying to get something more of it, if there's any coordination with Israel, if Israel promised him to, uh, you know, to let him know if they're doing anything in your letter. That didn't help me because he didn't give anything on that. Um, but I think a lot of what he said about Iran uh, was, was pretty interesting to Israeli ears. You mentioned the point about timing that he's doing this just as they're trying to get a deal. But of course, yeah. it's also the timing that he's en route to this meeting of Gulf states in Saudi Arabia. And you did talk about that relationship as well. And you and I talked about it just the other day about the, mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the dynamic of Joe Biden, you know, reaching out to Saudi Arabia just as so soon after he said, look, they're a pariah nation after the mm -hmm. uh, Khash Khashoggi killing. But and we talked about that with Peter Baker last week on the podcast. I just wanted to say that, first of all, the Saudi thing is obviously, um, it, it's interesting because it's, it's making a lot of uh, headlines here in the United States where I am right now. And there's some criticism exactly because of what you said. And Israel obviously is very pleased that he's going to Saudi Arabia. But I think we should notice what he says in the clip. And that is, he says that the meeting, the GCC meeting happens to be in Saudi Arabia. So that's kind of trying to distance himself from the actual uh, fact that he's going there. I think we should, that's what we should kind of notice. So I want to ask you, uh, if I may, about uh, about Saudi Arabia. You will be making an historic flight after visiting uh, Israel. Could you explain for us, sir, what is the reasoning? Is it about oil prices? Is it about giving some sort of answer to Iran? What is the trip about in your No, so, The trip is about stability in the Middle East. It's overwhelming the interest of the United States of America mm -hmm. to have more stability in the Middle East, number one. It's overwhelming the interest of Israel and I think the United States in the region for Israel to be more integrated in the region and accepted as an equal. And so for every reason, it makes sense to me that uh, I would go to the, the GCC. It's not just Saudi, it happens to be held in Saudi Arabia now, but it's all about making sure that we're in a situation where the broader picture is that there are those who thought with the last administration, we sort of walked away from the Middle East, that we were going to create a vacuum that China and or Russia would fill. And we can't let that happen. And so, and secondly, the more Israel is integrated into the region as an equal and accepted, the more likely there is going to be a means by which they can eventually come to accommodation with the Palestinians down the road.
Maybe I can ask you to give you a preview of what to expect on that, exactly on, on the normalization between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. Well, that's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. But increasing the relationship in terms of acceptance of each, of each other's presence, the uh, working together on certain things, it all makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I think so. So what was so interesting all the way through this was putting things to him that, you know, often people just assume there's all kinds of bodies of conventional wisdom around mm -hmm. what the administration thinks. Uh, and actually, there is just something very clarifying about putting that to the principal to the actual head of the administration. I mean, it's, you know, you, me, everyone, all of these other journalists just constantly are piecing together how, what we imagine to be the thinking of the president. And then you just sort of mm -hmm. find how clarifying it is to hear the president himself. In that vein, for example, I think, and again, we talked about it with Peter Baker, that we have assumed for a long time no love lost between Joe Biden and Israel's previous and possibly next Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. And again, just fascinating to hear how he reacts to the question, how when you put the put the name to him, how he responds. So we should hear that. You're going to meet with uh, Prime Minister uh, Yair Lapid. You're also going to meet with the leader of the opposition, Netanyahu. Uh, you've known each other for many years. And the Obama and Netanyahu uh, relationship was, uh, you were then Vice President, very tumultuous years. If he wins... You know, we're having elections fairly many times these years. If he wins and returns to office, are we going to see a return of that fraught relationship? No, what you're going to see is, look, Israel's a democracy. We're committed to the state, not an individual leader. Just mm -hmm. like Israel, our, our allies are not committed to an individual president. They're committed to the state of the United States. Mm -hmm. And so Bibi and I have known each other for close to 40 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, uh, we know where we agree and where we disagree we make no bones about it but it's a i'm dealing with a democratic state that is uh going through a decision as to who they're going to have as leader whoever the leader is i'll work with uh make no mistake jonathan there is no love lost between president biden and netanyahu and the reason he is he's, he's wording it very carefully here is that he's looking at the same polls you and i are looking at and they know that there is an option that netanyahu is the next prime minister so so he's saying you know we're, we're going to deal with it and don't worry about it it doesn't mean he's a fan. No. I, I thought the, the, the tiny little extra layer, though, was called referring to him as Bibi and saying, I've known him for 40 years. That was the little extra. That was a little yeah. bouquet, a small bouquet, a small little arrangement of flowers that he handed exactly. to the previous prime minister because he could have just kept it to our relationship is with the country, whoever the country chooses, we'll deal with, punked as my late mother would have said, he could have left it there, but he didn't. He added the little bit of yeah. of love in the form of the nickname and the 40 years. And if you were BB watching that, you know, you'd blush delightedly and and he'd yes. be pleased. Although although I don't know if Netanyahu likes to be reminded of the fact that he's almost Joe Biden's age. Like, I think he acts like a much younger man and he cries, tries to make everyone forget that he's actually 73. So the fact that Biden said, I didn't think, I don't think he said it deliberately to make, you know, to annoy Netanyahu, but he said, I've known him for 40 years. So everyone's doing the math. Like, they're pretty much the same age. So. Yes. Which is funny because we should say something about the age because, you know, it is quite true about the vigor of someone like Netanyahu who does seem younger. And. Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is visually, Joe Biden looks pretty old in this interview. He is quite a sort of 
frail 78, 79-year-old visually. And yet, as you and I are deconstructing the careful and interesting diplomatic footwork, this idea that he's some kind of, you know, they, there's this euphemism about, oh, he miss, he's missing a step. You know, the people who are trying to project him as this doddery old man who's lost his grip, as you and I are now mm-hmm. deconstructing his answers, he, he's he's really on it, and he's on the nuance of the region and mm-hmm. the politics. Completely. I mean, uh, one of the amazing things is that when I sent this interview back to we did it on Tuesday. It, was, it aired on Wednesday. So there's enough time for our, my editors and my, the managers at the channel to look at it. And they all called me back and they said, why do they always portray him as this frail, you know, weak person? He's actually really on it. He's very sharp. He knows all the details. Like that is, I think that comes out from the interview, uh, which makes you wonder, why doesn't he actually do, do more of these? I completely agree that the way in which the manner and the, the choosing of words, and, you know, obviously we know this about Joe Biden. He's always been someone who could be very blunt in the way he talks. He talks very freely. And I think that did not change uh, with age at all. No, in fact, I one of my little small media observations is I reckon as a result of your interview, the first with the Foreign Network, mm-hmm. um, I think they'll do, they'll be more. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the conclusion they draw from this is, you know, mm-hmm. this works for him and we should do more of it. So you may have an impact on the White House communication strategy as a result of this interview. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Now, the other thing that you and I have talked about more or less since Unholy began was this shift that's going on in American politics and particularly on the Democratic side, capital D, in terms of the relationship with Israel. And we've often talked about this generational fault line, the sort of AOC, the squad, the younger Democrats, no major tight bond with Israel compared to the old guard, which Biden absolutely embodies. Again, something that we take, you know, we we assess from all kinds of angles, but you had the chance to put this directly to the man at the center of it. You were really at the forefront, sir, of pushing for military and security assistance for Israel. We, we should note that Obama, the Obama-Biden administration oversaw the approval of the Iron Dome. But there are also other voices in the Democratic Party, sir, voices that say that Israel is an apartheid state calling for an end of unconditional aid. There's an undeniable gap between you and those voices. There are a few of them. I think they're wrong. I think they're making a mistake. Israel is a democracy. Israel is our ally. Israel is a friend. And uh, I think that I make no apologies. We've, we've provided for my administration, $4 billion plus another billion for Iron Dome. And we're working on a laser project to be able to replace Iron Dome. Uh, it's overwhelming our interest that, that uh, Israel be stable. But if even an issue like interceptors for the Iron Dome is a controversial thing, should be concerned for the, for the future of the relationship between Israel and the no. Democratic Party? No. Okay. There's no possibility, I think, of... Uh, the Democratic Party, or even a significant portion of the Republican Party walking away from Israel. So I think that's, an, uh, you know, for me, that was, and, and I'll talk about maybe later when we like talk a little bit more about how to think about this kind of interview, that when you know that you have, at the end of the day, you're going to have the seven or eight or nine questions and that's it. This was a question that was very important for me to ask, uh, because I know he is of the Democratic establishment, and we talked about this, about how he views Israel. And there are other voices. And I'm not sure he's right when he says these voices are few. They're not going to be few in 20 years. And I'm not going to, not sure they're going to be few in a decade. And he obviously represents a different era in, in these kinds of politics. Remember what Peter Baker told us last week about how 
Israel used to be this, you asked him, will he, will he get any sort of political points coming to Israel? And he said, well, not anymore because it's not this consensus. But I think he was interested to hear this rebuke that he gave his members of his own, his own party about what they think about Israel. And was going out of his way to say there are very few of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're a minority strain within the Democratic Party. You and I have can you know can debate for ages whether he's right, particularly mm-hmm. generationally. But it was interesting to hear him sort of push back. Um, amazing, really, that you you know because it, you didn't have hours and hours with him, but you covered so much ground. So you did range beyond the immediate na- you know neighborhood conversation about Israel and its mm-hmm. neighbors, and you asked him about. Ukraine. Tell us what was in your mind with your question there. Well, what I was trying to see is, and again, the the thinking on this was, since he doesn't do international interviews, and and at the end of the day, of course, Israelis, we tend to think we're the center of the world. There are other things going on. So um, what, what I wanted to hear was how long he thought that the war could still last, and can he keep this alliance together against Putin for a long time. And and so what he actually said was the war can last a long time and I can keep this alliance together a long time. So we can hear that. You're the one who led a coordinate and international support for Ukraine, international pressure on Putin. We're almost five months into this, uh, sir, and, and gasoline, natural gas, food prices rising. Are you concerned uh, when you look at the resilience of this alliance when these are the economic pressures? Well, look, uh as you accurately pointed out, when uh, we predicted, I predicted he was going to attack. Mm-hmm. Others were saying, no, he's not going to, he's going to, he's going to invade. Uh, the idea that we would stand by in the West, NATO in particular, and uh, have the largest invasion of physical force in another country since World War II mm-hmm. and stand there was just not even on the, not in the cards. And everything that he's attempted to accomplish has backfired for him. Number two, we were able to maintain complete coherence and stability in Europe with all the NATO allies. And, uh, and as I said at the time, when we imposed sanction on, sanctions on, uh, on Russia, it was going to hurt everybody. We were gonna, but it was the price of being able to keep this guy from being able to succeed. And uh, I think it's important. So how long is this going to last? How, how long is this onslaught going to last? His as long onslaught as it's going to take. We cannot let him prevail. It can take months. It can take years. It could. I remember when the Russians first invaded Ukraine, we talked about the war of the narratives and how important Israel was for Volodymyr Zelensky because he wanted people to draw this comparison that somehow Putin was the new Hitler and that he was engaged in a kind of eliminationist project. And therefore, he felt that would add to the moral heft of that case if Israel was on board and an ally of his. And therefore, I read into the fact that President Biden was saying to you, an Israeli journalist on an Israeli network, Vladimir Putin doesn't just want to, you know, conquer or whatever. He wants to eradicate, eliminate, in effect, Ukraine off the face of the earth. I, I don't know. Maybe it's what he would have said to an interviewer from, you know, Belgium. But to me, I felt as if that had a, a, an extra resonance. And he was trying to, he was essentially endorsing the Zelensky narrative and saying, there's a project here going on from Vladimir Putin, which you lot, you, the people of Israel, Jews and Jews mm-hmm. around the world, will be very familiar with. And I felt that had a kind of moral charge in his answer. Mm-hmm. 
I, I, I agree. I think that's, I don't know if he'd say it to anyone else, but but I think that's what he was trying uh, to say. It kind of took me by surprise that he said it could take years for the war to be over. And yes, we'll do what it takes. I don't know if if that's actually possible, but that was the the promise that he was trying to make. Yeah. So look, as I said, in, in just a series of uh, uh, questions, you didn't have, you know, a hundred questions to put to him. You only had really, relatively speaking, a few. And yet all that ground and all those subjects covered, all of them, I think, were revealing a lot, shedding a lot of mm-hmm. light. Um, what people, listeners perhaps don't know is that um, this also happened to coincide with a rather important day in the calendar. Unholy listeners were let into the saga when it was my birthday back in February. <laughs> the saga of Yonit sending me a gift, which I didn't open until it was my birthday, because I thought that Annoyingly was Annoyingly did not open before it was your birthday. Because that was the sane, human, and civilized thing to do. Because obviously only a barbarian would open a, bu- a birthday present before your actual birthday. I'm sure you're with me on this, unholy listeners. But uh, Yonit's own birthday passed this week, as it happens on the very day you were sitting face-to-face with Joe Biden. But the difficulty for your friends was that that meant you were therefore in Washington, D.C., and not in Tel Aviv, where a certain present may may already have arrived. So we'll have to delay till next week the soap opera of... um, of my present to you, which instead of being open before, is not even opened on the day, but it's going to be opened afterwards. Nevertheless, I would call that karma, I, sir. I would just call that karma. Yeah, but it's sitting there waiting for you. Um, but the thing <laughs> is that, uh, having said never to be outdone, I've been outdone by the President of the United States himself. <laughs> I think we have to... Let's hear it, and then you can tell us how on earth this happened. Okay. One, two, three. Happy birthday. So this is funny. First of all, his aides obviously told him that it was my birthday. The funny thing was that when I finally got the email confirming the interview from uh, the White House, it said the date. It said, well, the date is that I said, okay, that would be a nice birthday present. And somehow they uh, told him. And when I came to shake his hand and meet him, uh, he started telling me the story about how he loves calling up, you know, his friends or his family that have a birthday and tell them happy and sing happy birthday. And I thought that was a cute story at the beginning of the, before we started the cameras rolling. And then at the end of it, he just decided to sing happy birthday to me, which was really one of the sweetest, you know, gestures. Um, and really can't, I'm sorry, but, uh, to all my friends, uh, it's going to be hard to top that. I think it's a pretty high bar set by the president yeah. of the United States. And I think, am I right that he sang and pronounced your name correctly? He did pronounce my name correctly. We all know that's a very difficult thing to do. And and we we don't get that often. So, you know, adding to the file of how <laughs> 78, 79-year-old Biden is right on it, he passed a test which a lot of people in the prime of life have failed. So he that's got true. there. No, I that's think true. it was amazing. I think your friends have no chance um, nope. competing with that. And um, my little gift to you will be pale in comparison. 
but heartfelt all the same. Um, so I do quite like having you on as our special guest on Unholy, although I think in a way our special guest on Unholy this week is Joe Biden. Exactly. I was going to say, we're not, that, you know, I could talk about this forever, but again, I don't think that was exactly uh, what we did. No, I, I have to share with you, though, Jonathan, that it, the way in which these kinds of conversations happen, the minute that you have that limit that you know is going to be a 13-minute conversation, and you know you have about 100 questions about 20 different issues going on in the world, and just the process of spending three days going, okay, I have 100 questions, now I have to cut them down to 12, and no, I'm going to probably ask eight or nine, um, is pretty frustrating. And I, I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that he actually answered the questions, which doesn't happen often with politicians, definitely not Israeli politicians, which is my usual material. So I think uh, it was, at the end of the day, I am, you know, a little bit um, still tormenting myself about things I should have asked and didn't, but I hope it was still an interesting conversation. If you'd had time for one more question, what would have been your extra question? <sighs> um... I think something about how divided the United States is and how we feel the same in, in Israel and, and coming to power in this time of just these immense challenges and if there is any hope to sort of ameliorate this polarization or something uh, under that those lines. I mean, the minute you realize that the person that you're having a conversation with is actually, you know, forthcoming, does give answers, does listen, that is something that maybe I would try and put in there and see if he would give an interesting answer. Yeah, no, you're right, because he didn't do just boilerplate politician answers. Yeah. They were actual answers. Um, it's a special edition of Unholy, but um, certain traditions have to be observed. So mm -hmm. we give out some chutzpah and mention awards. I'm going to relieve you of that duty, partly because you've had your head somewhere else, but also that can be one of my multiple birthday gifts uh, <laughs> to you. Um, so instead, I'll nominate for uh, chutzpah. I thought, talk, since we're talking about American politics, let's keep up with that theme. I thought John Bolton, former National Security Advisor to Donald Trump, deserves a, a little bit of a chutzpah award for saying and perhaps admitting that he had helped plan assorted coup attempts in other countries. Uh, he was doing this en route to sort of saying, look, um, you know, what happened on January 6th, 2021 is not really a coup. It's a mistake to call it a coup because this wasn't uh, carefully planned, as if to say, I should know. I've been involved in coups. I've done the real thing. Um, you know, I've done that. It takes a lot of work. That's not what Trump did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. It's almost like saying, you know, don't give him the credit, the kudos of doing, <laughs> you know, planning a coup. That's my specialism. Uh, instead, this was just, you know, a mob insurrection. So I think a little chutzpah award can wing its way to John Bolton. And then in terms of Mensch, there were lots of rival candidates in the frame for this as the week went on. Uh, started with the woman in the Iranian city of Sharsava who took a, a stage a one-person protest against the now mandatory hijab or the rules that are enforcing hijab wearing. Uh, she made a point of removing her scarf in public and security forces attempted to detain her. It's a very a moment of real individual bravery. But I feel as if the mensch of the week has to go to our sort of honoured guest of this week, namely Joe Biden, for a moment that happened in Israel, not mm. um, uh, you know, after your conversation with him in Washington. Obviously, touchdown in Jerusalem, uh, as so often he goes to... Um, 
he went as foreign visiting foreign leaders uh, always do to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial and Museum there, to meet Holocaust survivors. And people, I think, will have seen this video. It's just such a telling little moment where he approaches a group of Holocaust survivors, now obviously very old, very frail, who rise to meet the president. And straight away, he gestures to them to take their seats, to sit down. And in order to make that happen, he doesn't just gesture, he then himself kneels. He sinks to his knees, not sort of ostentatiously, just so that he is then eye level with them as they remain seated. It's an amazingly... It's a small, it's completely natural and spontaneous gesture where of somebody who would always do that for an older, more frail person, but in this case, he's showing sort of honour and respect to them, that of course they shouldn't stand for him. They are survivors of the Holocaust. He will literally kneel so that he's at their level and they don't have to get out of their chairs. It's just one of those moments people always say about Joe Biden, this uh, this empathy, this mourner in chief, that he has such experience of grief, there's deep emotional intelligence. I thought all of that was there. Tremendous humility as well. The, you only have to imagine the contrast. There is no way his predecessor, Donald Trump, would ever have done that. Mm. And it just is why, even though his approval rating is so low, it is why a lot of people around the world do have admiration for this man, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, look, it's definite. That, first of all, it was in such a beautiful and, and moving moment. And as you said, it's, it was very natural for him. And you see that. He meets with Holocaust survivors in the White House. I know that a, a story recently that he uh, sat with a Holocaust survivor for an hour. Uh, and she said to him, you know, you've done so much in your, your life. You, you became president. He said, this is nothing compared to what you went through. This is a story that has really framed his life. He tells us even the beginning of the interview I did with him about how his father would talk about this and say, you know, we should have bombed the railroads and, and all that. And, and this is really something so important to him and such a part of his narrative in his life. And you really feel that in that moment. So yes, a very deserved Mensch Award, I think. Yeah, I think he is uh, an unambiguous and unopposed winner. A very special edition of Unholy with Yoni in Washington and me in London. But you can follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Unholy Podcast is where you find us on Facebook. Lots of really interesting comments uh, uh, and discussion going on over there. And because we always follow tradition, Yoni, why don't you do our thing? So a big thank you to Gaia Glazer and Omer Prima this week, staying up very late because of our special edition. And also thank you to Rom Atik and to Irad Eshel for original music. Don't get used to this whole setup, Jonathan. Next week, it's just back to normal Tel Aviv. I look forward to it. Safe travel, <laughs> safe flight back. Me too.